We're going to continue in our series, Genesis uh, chapter 2. Last week, Pastor David preached on uh, creation's caretakers. Uh, And this morning, I'll preach from the title, Created for Vulnerability. And so we'll be in Genesis chapter 2, verses uh, 21 through 25, and then chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 2. Uh, Beginning at verse 21, it reads, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then he said to the man, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes, And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of of them both were open, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Genesis 2, verses 21 through 25, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let us, let us pray. Father, we thank you for um, this day. <clears throat> we thank you for the opportunity to um, gather together as a community of faith to, to speak to you through songs of praise, um, to be encouraged by fellowship with one another. It is our prayer now that you would speak to us through your word, uh, that we would uh, be eager to hear it, to apply it to our lives, uh, that we will receive it not as the words of men, uh, but as it is in truth, the word of God. For we don't need to hear, <clears throat> we don't need to hear from a finite man this morning. <clears throat> we need to hear from a timeless God. And so would you sanctify us by your truth? Your word is truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A young man walks down the streets of Cleveland. You can almost hear the cadence of unrest within him, a a turmoil that threatens to crescendo at any moment. He is a violent and volatile man known for his unpredictable eruptions of rage and anger. In fact, he's so violent and volatile that his employer, the U.S. Navy, 
is threatening to dishonorably discharge him unless he can get a handle on his emotions. And so as a last resort, the Navy requires that he sit down and meet with a therapist in hopes that he would discover the, the roots of his rage, the, the roots of his anger. And so as Antoine Fisher begins this introspective journey, you begin to see in this film starring uh, Denzel Washington and Derek Luke, you begin to see fragments of his past. You meet a man who never knew the loving embrace of his biological parents. You meet a man who grew up in a foster home where he was physically abused and emotionally abused and sexually abused. And one might assume that the seeds of his anger had been sown in the soil of that abusive upbringing. And that would be a logical conclusion to draw. Yet as the narrative of his life unfolds on screen, it becomes increasingly evident that there is a deeper well from which his issues flow. There is a source that lay beneath the root of his circumstances. You see, at the core of Antoine's struggles is the profound absence of meaningful connections with others. This revelation is crystallized in a pivotal scene toward the end of the movie when Antoine finally comes face to face with his biological mother. And in this highly emotional scene, Antoine begins the conversation by posing a question to her. He says, why didn't you ever come for me? I used to look for you every day at the end of school. As his mother sits there in silence, Antoine begins to recount the milestones of his life. He, he says, I'm serving my country in the U.S. Navy. I've, I've read hundreds of books. I've learned multiple languages, and, and I'm working on a third. And then he says, I'm a good person. I'm a good man. He references his achievements and personal qualities, not so much to elicit applause, but to seek connection. It is his way of saying, now will you accept me? Now will you embrace me? Now will you love me? And in this poignant scene, the layers of his anger revealed their true origin. His rage was not solely a product of his past trauma. It was a consequence of never having felt the fundamental human yearning to belong, to be embraced, to be loved. I think we can all relate to the Antoine Fisher story this morning because as one author says, wired within the hard drive of humanity is a longing to belong. This is why many of us address the way we did during high school. I grew up in the 1990s where the rule of thumb when it came to fashion was that the baggier, the better. And so whether it was Car Kanai or Cross Colors or FUBU or Tommy Hilfiger, the baggier, the better. I look back at some of those pictures and I wonder, what was I thinking? But there was a longing to belong. This is why when 18 and 19-year-olds step on campus, they join a fraternity or sorority, right? They are drawn to the appeal of brotherhood or sisterhood. Why? Because there is a longing to belong. Now, the question on the floor becomes, where did this longing originate? 
Well, we get our answer to that question here in Genesis chapter 2. By way of recap, we we learn and we read that that as God is in the midst of his creative genius, we, we see this recurring phrase appear. In fact, six times after God creates something, the text says, and God saw that it was good. Whether it's the moon or the stars, the trees or the sands, the efforts of his assessment was the same. It was good. He is pleased. Everything is as he intended them to be. But then on the sixth day, man comes on the scene. And with his latest addition, the things that God had created are no longer just good. They are now very good. Then the unexpected happens. Maybe not unexpected from God's perspective, but certainly unexpected from our perspective. Because after explaining in more detail his design and intentions for man, God says, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, what's interesting about this verse is that there is no blemish on the canvas of creation. There is no stain on humanity's conscience. There is nothing that would create a chasm between God and man. At this point, Adam is in a state of perfect communion with God. The text says that he walks with God in the garden during the cool of the day. And so they enjoy a deep and authentic and vulnerable relationship with each other. Despite their rich communion, the word that God uses to describe Adam is alone. And God says that this aloneness is not good. Now, it's notable that in a world untouched by sin, In a relationship untouched by rebellion, God perceives a lack, a deficit, a void that that transcends even the purity of Eden. And so God lovingly addresses Adam's need by creating Eve, and, and they enjoy a relationship marked by vulnerability. In the garden, before the eyes of God and before each other, there was no hiding, no no pretense, no shield of fig leaf. They were unencumbered by the weight of guilt and the fear of judgment. Their nakedness was not just physical. It was a spiritual and emotional transparency. It was the soul laid bare. Now, for many years, many of us have heard this passage uh, quoted in the context of marriage, and rightfully so. But I believe the implications go beyond an affirmation of the marriage relationship because this verse unveils a fundamental truth about the human condition, and that is this. We were created for connection, for community. Vulnerability was designed to be the norm for our relationships, not the exception. And so isolation and loneliness were never part of God's original design. For just as he exists in meaningful relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so are we to exist in meaningful relationship with others. Because without those connections, we don't reflect the image of the one who created us. Henry Cloud says it this way, at our core, we are relational beings. 
And the soul cannot prosper without being connected to others. Now, I apologize. This is a bit of a long runway for us this morning. But, but this is important context for where we are going. Because as we come to the end of Genesis chapter 2, we encounter a phrase that we must explore. The text says, both the man and his wife were naked, and here it is, and they felt no shame. Now, it's interesting here, right, that the writer could have chosen any number of characteristics, any, any number of adjectives to describe Adam and Eve at this state, right? There is joy in the garden. There's, there's peace in the garden. There's, there's vulnerability there. There's a sense of, 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 of being known and being loved. Yet, it is shame that takes center stage in the narrative. Why is that? Well, in the book of Genesis, shame does not emerge as an incidental theme. Instead, shame serves as an origin story. The seed from which the tree of our relational brokenness takes root. You see, the essence of what transpired in the Garden of Eden and the repercussions that still reverberate through our relationships today can all be traced back to shame. It is the persistent specter that plagues our interactions and shapes our relationships. You see, we we long to live out God's design for meaningful connection. As we saw earlier, he has planted this within us. We desire to enter into rooms without the weight of inadequacy pressing down upon our shoulders. We want to engage in conversation without the anxiety of not being smart enough or or funny enough. Students want to step in the classrooms driven by a desire for knowledge rather than the fear of not measuring up. Parents long to nurture their children in environments where growth is celebrated rather than having unspoken expectations cast a cloud over their child's joy and self-worth. Our hearts ache for the kind of communities where conversations about faith, sexuality, and justice are met with openness and curiosity rather than condemnation and division. We long for these kind of connections and relationships. But the evil one wields the weapon of shame to discourage our vulnerability, to disrupt our relationships, the very thing that we were created for. And so therefore, to understand the significance of shame in this passage is to recognize that the battle against shame is a battle against the evil one's most dangerous weapon. So this morning, we will see how shame operates in our lives, leading us to hide, to distance ourselves from God and from one another. But equally important, we will also learn learn how God uses vulnerability as the path that leads us back to a place where we are known fully and loved unconditionally. And so the rest of our time this morning will rest on these two statements. Shame is the cause of our relational brokenness. Vulnerability is the path to our relational flourishing. Shame is the cause of our relational brokenness. Vulnerability is the path to our relational flourishing.
flourishing. So we begin with shame as being the cause of our relational brokenness. I think it may be helpful for us to, to have someone with some sort of a, a working definition of shame this morning. Some of you may be familiar with Brene Brown. She's done a significant amount of work on the topic of shame and vulnerability. And she provides what I think is a very good layman's term definition of shame. And she would define it as the intensely painful feeling that something we've experienced, something we've done or failed to do, makes us unworthy of connection. Something we've experienced. Something we've done or failed to do makes us unworthy of love and connection. So that's, that's going to be kind of a, a working definition of shame as we move forward. So the question now becomes, how does shame cause relational brokenness? We see this in three primary ways here in the text, and they all build on each other. The first thing that we notice here, and, and this is now we're in Genesis 3, is that shame uses doubt to prompt insecurity. Shame uses doubt to prompt insecurity. Now, the text opens up in this dialogue between the serpent and Eve. Let me just pause here for a second. I know we know this story. I know we've heard it since we were in Sunday school. And 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 anytime we read Genesis 1, 2, or 3, I think there's a temptation to just be like, oh, I know this story. They ate ate the fruit and yada, yada, yada. Let's not do that this morning. Okay? I I really want us to try to approach this with fresh eyes this morning. Amen? Amen? Okay. All right. So the text begins with this this dialogue between the serpent and Eve. And it begins with a seemingly innocent question, right? The serpent asks, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Now, we notice here that the serpent makes it seem as if God has restricted them from eating from all of the trees. And this distortion is intended to plant seeds of doubt. For the serpent knows that doubt finds fertile soil in a heart where trust is eroding. Now, Eve responds to the inquiry. She confirms that they can, yes, they can eat from the trees of the garden. But there is one tree that they should not eat from nor touch lest they die. Now, Eve's, uh, this is a mostly accurate description of what God has said. But she adds this additional command of not touching. And that reveals that doubt has begun to take root in her heart. The serpent now sees an opening, and so he responds by saying, well, you will not surely die. God knows that on the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. Now, for the serpent to suggest that Eve would become like God may appear enticing. But concealed within this seductive notion is the implication that God harbors a reluctance to share in the intimacy and connection they have experienced thus far. That God's love for her may be conditional. And that by eating the fruit of this tree, she can somehow become more worthy of his love. And so Eve, longing for more. Fearing the loss of connection with her and God sees the fruit as an opportunity to close the perceived chasm between her and God. And this is how shame uses doubt to prompt insecurity. It questions our inherent worth. 
It whispers that our authentic selves are not enough, that there is something fundamentally flawed or inadequate within us. Shame deceives us into believing that we must reach for something beyond ourselves, that the attainment of knowledge, of power, of prestige will pave the way for approval. And so we begin this journey, this journey to become better. This, this journey to become smarter, this journey to become stronger, wealthier, prettier, thinner, and this goes on and on and on. And in the throes of this pursuit, as we inevitably fall short of perfection, shame uh, seeks to exploit our most deepest vulnerability. We find ourselves standing in the shadow of our own self-doubt, yearning for affirmation and acceptance that perpetually eludes us. This is the trap that shame sets for us. This web of uncertainty, of of self-imposed inadequacy and a thirst for validation that perpetually eludes us. So in what ways... Have you begun to doubt God's love for you this morning? In what ways have you begun to internalize feelings of inadequacy? Shame uses doubt to prompt insecurity. The second thing we notice is that once shame uses doubt to prompt insecurity, shame then uses insecurity to create isolation. Shame uses insecurity to create isolation. Now, this isolation can be both physical and emotional. And we actually see both here in this passage. But I want to focus at this point just on the emotional isolation that it causes. As we observe this conversation between the serpent and Eve in verses 1 through 5, what I find interesting is rather than inviting Eve into a conversation with God, the serpent chooses to engage her in a conversation about God. Now, this choice is not by coincidence. In fact, uh, the serpent is seeking to perpetuate the notion that God is distant, that his wisdom is finite, that his care is unreliable, that his grace is out of reach. And so Eve's hesitation to confide in God, her her choice to withhold her doubts and insecurities, to, to suppress her fears and her worries, means that she carries the weight of her uncertainties alone. In this isolation, she loses sight of the fact that God knows her heart intimately. That he understands the depths of her struggle, that he longs for her to lay her innermost self before him. And so unfortunately, she chooses a path where her struggles remain her secrets. And this, unfortunately, is an all too common reality, right? We, we, we go through life carrying emotions we dare not voice. We imagine countless scenarios of what might happen if we were to share our doubts, to share our fears, to confess our sins. Our minds craft stories of rejection and judgment and abandonment. And as we envision these potential outcomes, we convince ourselves that silence is the safer path. 
We suffer under the false belief that our brokenness is too immense, that our sins are too grievous to warrant God's grace. And in this all too common reality, we find ourselves trapped in a paradox because we long for connection. Yet we shy away from vulnerability. And the thoughts that could spark conversations, the the thoughts that could bring about reconciliation, the thoughts that could offer healing remain locked in the confines of our minds. And so in what areas of your life do you hide behind masks? In what ways do you wall yourself off emotionally and physically from relationships with others? Shame uses insecurity to create isolation. And then finally, once we see that shame has used doubt to prompt insecurity, it uses insecurity to create isolation. Shame then uses isolation to fracture relationships. We see this in verse 6. I'll, I'll read it again. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... And that it was a light to the eyes and that the the tree was desired to make one wise. She took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now here we notice that shame evolves from an individual experience to a communal expression. With fig leaves and shadows, Adam and Eve seek to hide not just from God, but also from each other. They conceal not only their bodies, but their hearts. Erecting the first walls that that would separate human souls from one another and from God. And so it is no longer just the personal affliction of Eve. It is now the communal experience of them both. And as the story continues, we see that the blame game starts. Now, I think for most of us, we say, you know, Adam blames Eve and Eve Eve blames the serpent. But that's not actually what happens. What I always have found interesting is that Adam doesn't really blame Eve. Adam blames God. Adam says, that woman you gave me. I was good. I was in the garden. I was, you know, naming animals and, you know, I was chilling. You brought, I didn't ask for her. You brought her. It's wild. I mean, if you read it, it's like, really? That's a bold, that's bold. Right? And so this, this, this blame game begins. Eve blames the serpent as the one who deceived her. And we see here that shame is never contained to the boundaries of the individual soul. It always flows outward, infecting relationships and leading to division and discord. And so it is a tragic irony that in their attempts to hide from shame, Adam and Eve only succeed in intensifying it. And now the garden, once this place of of harmony and and communion and and vulnerability becomes a place of fractured relationships and estrangement from God. And as the biblical narrative moves forward from the Garden of Eden, brokenness follows and sin multiplies. 
The virtues of fidelity and love are abandoned for the vices of polygamy and lust. The wickedness of envy and violence dim the lights of kindness and compassion. The tenderness of nurturing care and the the vulnerability inherent in relationships give way to perceptible indifference and paralyzing shame. And like an earthquake, shame begins to send aftershocks for generations to come. As we read through the pages of history, we see how the communal expression of shame persists. For example, just consider the way our country has grappled with the cruel and unjust institution of slavery. The instinct to hide, to obscure truths of past sins, often rears its ugly head. And so fig leaves take the form of national myths. Narratives that speak of progress and exceptionalism while downplaying the injustices and traumas of the past. These narratives provide a shield against external judgment and internal shame. They offer a way for the country to present itself as virtuous and untarnished despite the undeniable evidence of historical wrongs. This is a form of collective hiding. A shared fig leaf that obscures truth. The brutality of a nation's history. And so whether it's the Garden of Eden or historical or modern injustices, it is clear that shame is never contained to the individual. It spreads. It fractures relationships designed for vulnerability. And unfortunately, this is the story we still live in. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, if shame is the cause of our relational brokenness, vulnerability is the path to our relational flourishing. This is true for two primary reasons. Number one, in vulnerability, we experience God's unconditional love. As Adam comes, or I'm sorry, as God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, he he poses this question. He says, where are you? Now, God is not seeking their location in the garden. For he, the the omniscient one, he knows precisely where they are. Rather, his question serves as an invitation to come back into his presence. To be free from the burden of shame. And so despite the ache and sorrow that must have swelled in God's heart as he witnessed his children turn away from him, he continues to pursue them in love. Here we find that God's love is not, that God's love not only precedes shame, but it endures in its presence. It is a love that refuses to be deterred by our frailty, a a love that persists despite our failure, a love that calls us to come as we are. So God approaches Adam and Eve, not with condemnation, but with the tenderness of a father seeking out his children. And this is the truth that we see throughout the scriptures, right? God in loving pursuit of his children. In the Old Testament, we see him guiding his people with a pillar of fire and a cloud during their wilderness journey. Even in times of exile and separation from their homeland, God continued to communicate with his people through the voice of prophets. 
And the New Testament takes this theme to a, an entirely new level because in the Gospels, we read the revolutionary news that God has taken up residence in the person of Jesus Christ. And so in Jesus, God becomes flesh. Walking among us, experiencing our joys and our sorrows, our, our triumphs and our trials. And so from, the Garden of, so from the Garden of Eden to the cross of Calvary, the overarching narrative of scripture paints the portrait of a God who passionately desires intimacy and proximity with his creation. We witness a continuous invitation to draw near, to experience a love that seeks to reclaim and restore what was lost. So this truth calls us to take off the mask that we wear, to cast aside the personas we project, and to stand before our God in authenticity. Because it is in these moments when our most shamed experiences are laid bare before God that we find the opportunity for healing. For it's in the presence of God's unconditional love that shame loses its power. So I want to encourage you this morning to to come to God with your weariness, with your doubts, with your fears, with, with your struggles, with your sins. and Offer them as the broken pieces of your humanity. And trust that God will receive them with grace and with love. So vulnerability is the path to our relational healing. First, because in vulnerability, we experience God's love. But then secondly, because in vulnerability, we embody our created purpose. I want to go back to Genesis 2. That's where we began this morning. The text says that we're both naked and unashamed. Now understand this, in the Garden of Eden, vulnerability was not a word Adam and Eve had to consciously understand. It was simply the truth of their existence. It was their natural state of being. That they walked in the garden with with hearts unveiled, with, with minds unclouded, with souls laid bare. There was no emotional distance, no secret sorrows, there, there were no hidden agendas. There was no need for defenses or masks because there was no fear of judgment or rejection. Their vulnerability was not a burden, but a blessing, not a source of anxiety, but a source of joy. And they commune with God during the cool of the day, knowing that their vulnerability would be met with love. Vulnerability reflects God's intention for creation. Now, in our lives, we find ourselves far removed from this intended purpose. Every day we are reminded that this world is no longer a garden. Every day we are reminded of the harsh realities of brokenness. Where the indignity of poverty and the terror of violence persists. Where the cries of suffering children and the pain of failed marriages abound. Where war seems endless and peace appears elusive. 
or battles with addiction and depression appear hopeless and the inevitability of death and grief looms. This world is no longer a garden. Yet we must not resign ourselves to a life that is void of vulnerability. Because when we choose to live behind masks, when we wall ourselves off emotionally, we do more than protect ourselves from potential hurt. We also forfeit the profound healing and joy and connection that our souls inherently long for. You see, the facades that we create may offer some semblance of security. But ultimately, they diminish our humanity. They betray our created purpose. Now, I, I don't, I don't want to seem naive this morning. I recognize that the journey to vulnerability requires courage. It requires a willingness to expose our weaknesses and our wounds, to risk rejection And to trust that the gift of authenticity will be met with tenderness. But the beauty of vulnerability is that it is not a one-way street. You see, when we open our hearts, when we create space, or when we open our hearts, we create space for others to do the same. In our vulnerability, in our vulnerability, we become not only recipients of God's grace, but we also become participants and his plan for relational flourishing. And it is here where we commit to knowing and being known, to loving and being loved. As as we round third and head for home, again, I recognize that the act of living in vulnerability induces anxiety and fear among many of us this morning. But I want to remind us this morning that our hope is not rooted in our strength to become more vulnerable. You see, what sets the biblical story apart is not only an invitation to be vulnerable, but the living example of vulnerability provided by God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, some 2,000 years ago on a hill outside of Jerusalem, the sky was painted gray with despair. And underneath the endless clouds hung the thorn-crowned body of Jesus. His eyes were shut. His, his muscles were torn. His, his lips were stained in crimson. You see, crucifixion was designed to accomplish more than just the physical demise of its victims. It was used as a potent tool for public humiliation. Yet in the midst of this brutal spectacle, the crucified Christ reveals a profound truth about God's understanding of the human condition. From the agony of betrayal in the garden, to the weight of the cross on the road to Calvary, to the brutal beating he endured, to the forsaken cry from the cross, Jesus demonstrates that he clearly understands the profound difficulty of embracing vulnerability in the face of shame. He is not a distant or dispassionate God who issues commands from a lofty throne. Instead, he is a God who descends into the depths of our human experience, who sheds the layers of divinity to walk the path of human frailty. 
Therefore, in the crucified Christ, we encounter a God who knows our suffering because he has lived it, who understands our vulnerability because he has embraced it, and who comprehends our shame because he has endured it. So we must redirect our gaze to Jesus. We must engage him not merely as an abstract theological concept, but as a living example of vulnerability, allowing his example to illuminate our path. For in him we find the assurance that we are never alone. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the way in which we find such an encouraging and powerful uh, illustration of what it means to be vulnerable. That through the person of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we find the strength, the example. And so, Father, I pray that you would begin to speak to hearts this morning. Grant us the courage we need to to be vulnerable with the people that you have placed in our lives. To understand that this was indeed our created purpose. That if we're going to live a life, if we're going to truly live and not just exist, this is what you want us to live into. So grant us the courage to begin even this day to live into our created purpose for the good of others, for our growth, but ultimately for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.